This is episode 60 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 60 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we chat with Kirk Doran, the Henkels Family Collegiate Chair and Associate Professor of Economics at Notre Dame. We chat about the delight that economists find in discovering unintended consequences, about how professional prizes affect their recipients' future output, and the joys of a classical education for children. Let's sit down in the Marion Short Ethics Library for this marvelous conversation. Well, Kirk Doran, thank you so much for being with us here on the podcast. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Those kind of sorts of things. Great. So I'm from the East Coast. I was born in D.C. and grew up in the suburbs just outside of Washington, And uh, then I went to Harvard uh, as an undergrad, and I studied physics and applied math there. Uh, Then I went on to study economics for a PhD program at Princeton. And that's where I met my lovely wife. And I saw a movie called Rudy and decided I wanted to work at Notre Dame. And uh, we got married a couple weeks after she graduated, and we came out here. And this was my first job, and it's been my main job. Your, Your main job. Wow. How does a guy with a background in physics and applied mathematics move into the uh, so-called dismal science? Ah, That's a great question. So I was always interested in trying to understand patterns in the world around me, but the patterns that particles produce um, seemed less interesting because particles are producing them and particles are just less interesting than people. And so when I found out that there are patterns in the world that are produced by people, Uh, and that economics is one of those disciplines that tries to study that, it was just really appealing for me. So I took a little bit of economics near the end of my program at Harvard, Uh, not enough to get a degree in it, but enough to make me passionate about it. And then I worked for an economist who was really kind of like a former physicist um, who wrote me a recommendation um, to go to graduate school. I got in, and I never looked back. Wow. I'm reminded of this idea of people particles yes. because economists you think in large numbers right so yes. you can you're predicting large societal trends these sorts of things rather than you're not going to tell me what what an individual person is absolutely going to do or not do. Exactly. I think that's an incredibly important point. So in physics, um, with enough information, you can figure out exactly what an individual particle is going to do. But there's also a branch of physics that looks at patterns that emerge regardless of the precise behavior of individual um, particles, and that would be branches that are related to statistical physics or statistical mechanics. Um, So there are patterns that just emerge in the universe um, more or less regardless of whatever any individual actor within the system is doing. Um, that's a fuzzy way of putting it. Um, so there's, there's more precise ways of saying that. Um, but the upshot is that in economics, I believe, I'm one of the economists who believes that if patterns emerge among a large group of people, it's unlikely that the robust 
examples of such patterns. The ones that emerge again and again and again are due to precisely delineated, very carefully chosen behaviors of individuals. It's much more likely that those patterns emerge merely due to some other constraints that exist in the world around us that end up binding people's behaviors so that on average, they end up producing these outcomes. And so that makes me someone who's much more interested in things that markets do and things um, that happen with large groups of economic actors and economic agents, and much less interested in the kind of decision theory, um, game theory aspect of how individuals or very small groups of people behave. Okay. I don't suppose you've ever read the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Yes, I have. And you know, it is, I, I read it after I became an economist, but it really, it really, you hit the nail on the head with that because it really connects very deeply with my point of view as an economist. Sure. Right? I mean, they point out again and again that you're not going to be able to predict what an individual is going to do. But on average, you can predict these broad, uh, the broad dynamics even, not right. just the statics of society. Um, do I think we're ever going to get to that point? No. But like, other better economists before me, like Paul Krugman, um, I'm inspired by that kind of vision of trying to make progress precisely on those broader issues. Now, ironically, within the field of economics, we've since the mid 20th century tried to do it from the ground up. If we can understand individual behavior perfectly, then we can understand two or three groups of people at a time perfectly. And then maybe we can explain or understand how markets work. I, I'm, again, part of a subgroup of economists that thinks we got to go the other way around, a little bit inspired by statistical physics, very much like what you see the message of in, in, um, in the Foundation series. We'll get more precise results the larger the number of people we look at at once. So that's exciting. No, I, I'm really glad you read that book as well. I, yeah. I did. I, yeah. I actually reread the entire series in yeah. anticipation of the new TV series that's out. Oh, I thought it was anticipation of our interview. Well, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. yes. But I must say, uh, the TV series and the book series are essentially non-related. Yes, and that's that's a great frustration to me as a reader. Although I'm glad I reread them. And uh, it's hard and to film Asimov. It is. It yeah. is hard, to, especially a seven book series and things yes. like that. Right. Yeah. So. That's a wonderful background. What is it that you teach every day? What What are you teaching now? And, and Great. kind of what are your students like? So the the main courses that I teach at Notre Dame are principles of microeconomics, big classes to the freshmen and sophomores, um, economics of innovation, which is a smaller class uh, for juniors and seniors, and PhD labor economics. Okay. So those are the three courses that I do the most in. Um, my favorite class. I love all my classes. But my favorite class probably is the principal's class, just because you're getting the students when they're bright and fresh, and you're able to teach a lot of them all at once, and you're able to see ripples of understanding and enthusiasm move through the, the, the crowd as the students' sort of eyes light up and are able to understand things for the first time. Um, and also, I'm able to help form students to understand economics more as a discipline for understanding robust patterns in the world around us and less as a normative prescription for how people should behave. Right. Um, and so as a Catholic, that's super important for me. Um, on the first point, I believe in free will. If patterns exist in the world around us, including in the economy, it's probably not because people's 
decision-making is so horribly constrained by their own impulses and their own desires that they simply are producing those patterns. It's probably that our decision-making is constrained by other things, um, such as uh, the particular constraints that emerge as market prices emerge. And so that first point is important as a Catholic. But the second point is obviously important as a Catholic. I mean, it's deeply important to recognize that Utility maximization may or may not be a useful way of understanding individual behavior from a predictive standpoint, but we at a Catholic university should be very careful to make clear that it's not a particularly useful way of understanding how people ought to behave, so a normative understanding of of human behavior. My friend um, Brian Cutter, who has a uh, so several very interesting TikTok videos. I understand the young people watch something called TikTok these days. I'm not 100% sure what it is. But I did see one TikTok video, which is um, his TikTok video about utilitarianism. So if anyone disagrees with me that utilitarianism is not a super useful uh, approach to understanding morality and ethics, watch Brian Cutter's TikTok video about utilitarianism. Um, it's styled as, as a rap. Um, yeah. <laughs> we will put a link to it in the show notes. There we so go. People can see it. Brian, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you raised something interesting there, this idea that I think society in general has become very aware of, especially in the last few years, this idea of systemic issues and systemic problems that that kind of force us either to yes. think in or act in one way or another, right? So yes. this is related to what you're speaking about. Absolutely. In some sense, a lot of the critiques people have of the so-called market, um, usually when people are critiquing the market, they they kind of capitalize it or put it in quotes or italicize it. You know, the market is some sort of entity that's affecting us. Um, a lot of those critiques are less about um, the way that we have uh, instantiated um, markets in this country uh, today uh, than they are about constraints that emerge uh, regardless of how one could set up a market and that end up guiding or constraining our behavior in directions that almost inevitably will occur uh, as long as a large number of people are trading with each other uh, frequently. And so that's both it's, – it's, it's both very frightening to learn that that's the case and can be disheartening. Um, but it's also, in my view, it's it's also a pathway towards um, the solution to the problem. Once you realize that markets will almost inevitably, any way they're instantiated, produce some of the perverse effects that people complain about, you realize that we need some extra market solutions to solve those problems. And those extra market solutions involve uh, a robust uh, sphere of action for Catholics, uh, both um, in government, but especially in terms of our work as a church with the nonprofit behavior that we we do. I would say the work that the church has done supporting families and the development of strong families, strong marriages, and strong communities, a lot of that work has uh, fallen off the table as we've become a wealthier society um, and government has taken up the slack, but also we have expected markets and market behavior to pick up the slack. Really, we need as Catholics to solve a lot of the problems that markets can't solve or that even inevitably um, are exacerbated by by market behavior. Uh, and I think understanding that markets will inevitably constrain our behavior in ways that will produce some good outcomes and some perverse outcomes. And understanding that therefore as Catholics, we have a duty and an opportunity to solve some of those perverse outcomes through extra market behavior uh, is actually very liberating for me as a Catholic. Yeah. You mentioned the joy of teaching the principles class yes. is seeing the understanding ripple across your students. What yes. are your students like? 
Well, my students are amazing. So this semester I'm teaching uh, another class that I love, which is Economics of Innovation and Scientific Research. Uh, so let me tell you about those students. They are curious. They are hardworking. Um, they're interested in understanding not just to get a grade, but understanding for its own sake. They, uh, my students tend to ask a lot of questions, uh, which I like. Um, thinking back to the times that I've taught principals, um, the students that come in uh, in fall, say, of uh, their freshman year are so excited to be at Notre Dame. They're so grateful to have classmates that want to learn with them. They're grateful for all of their professors who actually want to get to know them and guide their intellectual development in an intimate way. Um, they're grateful for moral example. Uh, when they see their fellow classmates or their professors help someone who's in need, even when that those person's needs are, are intense, um, they get inspired by that. And you can see just the love that they have for this institution, the love they have for each other, and the love that we as faculty mem- members feel that they have for us. I'm just so grateful to work with these students. Um, they, they love the subject, they love each other, and, and I know that they love us on the faculty and staff who are serving them. Um, and that's what keeps me going, yeah. just the joy of working with people like that. Fun. Well, what are your particular areas of research interest? You talked about your teaching. Now, what, yes. what are you working on on your own? The area of economics that I was trained in is labor economics. So that's understanding how individual people make the decision of what to do with their time, uh, how much how much they produce, what they produce, who they produce it with. So that's important in general, but I think it's particularly important in the subset that that I study, which is the labor force of scientists, engineers, innovators, inventors, entrepreneurs. So as economists have shown, um, there's no way for economies to grow in the long term without there being some kind of input to all of our production that everyone can use without there being any less of it. Now, factories aren't like that. People's labor isn't like that. But ideas, knowledge, that's like that. When my daughter is using the Pythagorean theorem, she doesn't say, Dad, James is trying to borrow the Pythagorean theorem from me, and then there won't be enough for me. And that's why the Pythagorean theorem is super important for human civilization because we can all use it at once. We'll add up the sum total of everything we know, all of that knowledge, and you have an incredibly important driver of economic growth. In fact, it's the key and the essential driver because it's the only input to the production of new goods and services that everyone can use at once without there being any less of it. And therefore, it's the only way we can have long-term per capita economic growth. So it's so important to understand how new ideas are produced. And I am just fascinated with studying the workforce of people who produce new ideas. And that's what I've devoted most of my energies to for the last 10 years. Wow. Knowledge work. Yes, knowledge work. Exactly. Well, now, you've also researched the effect, you know, related to that, of top prizes on the recipient's subsequent uh, intellectual work. Yes. Um, Now, Friedrich Hayek 
famously said during his speech while receiving the 1974 Nobel Memorial Prize in economics that such prizes ought not be given to economists because they confer on the recipient, quote, an authority which in economics no man ought to possess, end quote, especially because their work affects public policy and lay people's pocketbooks in a way that a natural scientist never really will. Um, now, we're recording this in the Nobel Prize season. You yes, know, they, exactly. All, they're being announced every day right now. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and, and what you've learned? Sure. So I studied the top prize in another discipline, which is mathematics. And what's inter- interesting about mathematics is that the top prize, the Fields Medal, is awarded to people who are 40 or under. Right. And so that ends up producing a situation that's probably different from when you award the top prize to people who are 80, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't a prediction of uh, who's going to get the Nobel Prizes here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there is a tendency, and it's definitely not always true, but there's a tendency to award the Nobel Prize in economics to people who are at or approaching the, the, the very end of their career. Um, so why is that distinction important? Well, you know, as Lazier and others have shown, if you have a tournament, um, you can elicit wonderful effort from the participants in that tournament before the prize is given out. Um, but as economists, we know that when you give somebody something, it changes their opportunity set. And when you change someone's opportunity set, it's probably going to change their behavior. You've relaxed some constraints on what they could do. Well, giving someone a prize, it allows people to pursue things they otherwise wouldn't have pursued. It either directly or indirectly gives them a lot more money. Um, and it changes their incentives for doing things because their reward structure changes. So if you look at the top prize in mathematics, it's a good way of testing whether there are any perverse or unintended consequences to changing people's life by giving them a top prize. And it's particularly useful uh, to study the mathematics example because mathematicians only get their top prize once every four years. So if you combine the fact that it's only for people who are 40 and under – and the fact that it's for people who happen to be 40 and under – at exactly the right time every four years where it's available, you'll see that some people have almost four more years to be a contender for this prize than other people do. And using that fact, uh, my colleague George Borjas from Harvard and I ended up um, discovering some quasi-random variation in who ended up getting the Fields Medal and who in some sense could have or should have gotten it but just missed out on it for arbitrary reasons. And by comparing the people who actually got it with the people who just missed out on getting it for arbitrary or quasi-random reasons, we were able to see that indeed, when you expand people's opportunity set by giving them the top prize in their field, they end up producing a lot less work in that field relative to just missing out on the prize. And so we asked ourselves, why is that the case? And what George and I did is we looked at the work that people did do, and we saw that the work that people did do was in very different areas from what they had done before. In fact, there was a six-fold increase in their probability of what we called cognitive mobility, so thinking and working in areas in the space of ideas that are very different from where they had worked before. So if you look at that cognitive mobility, that tendency to work in new areas that they'd never explored before you see that it's associated with longer time lags between publications. 
So when you explore an area you've never explored before, it takes longer to get your next paper out. And those longer time lags multiplied by the six-fold increase in cognitive mobility ended up explaining 50% of the decline of uh, research output from these, from these mathematicians. And so it turns out that they, they explored things that they were perhaps less good at than they were at mathematics. It took them longer to produce output. And if you look at the kind of output they did produce, one of them became an economist, Stephen Smale, I think. You see that while they became leaders and important figures in their new field, they were never as important in their new field in any single case that we observed as they had been in mathematics. So it looks like there are unintended consequences, which is the favorite thing that economists like to look for. Right. So we're encouraging people, as John Charles Fields uh, wanted when he established the Fields Medal, we're encouraging people to work hard in their early career. Um, and, but once they get the prize, we're encouraging them perversely to explore completely different areas that they, they, they had never explored before, often outside of mathematics. So for a mathematics prize, it has some interesting unintended consequences. Wow. Is there also a sense that, well, I'm 41, I didn't win, I'm done? No, the people who didn't win, uh, so they're the comparison group. The people who didn't win continue along similar trends to what they and the people who did win had before. So if you look at the the winners and the most comparable group of contenders, they have very similar trends before Mm -hmm. they win the prize or just miss out on it. But the ones who just miss out on it continue along those trends. Okay. Whereas the winners have a sudden trend break. Sure. After they after they win. And is some of that also as you're describing, you know, it takes them longer to publish. I'm imagining some of that is because they've got to spin up in a new field. Yes, that's what it is. They've, they've, they've decided to enter a new field, and there's no reason why they have to. Sure. Um, there are subsets of fields medalists who don't, but on average, they're more likely to explore a new field. And when they do, on average, it takes them a long time to get work done. Sure. And they never end up being as as as, as good. As good. Huh. Yeah. That's that. Yes. That is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So. It's unintended consequences. I, economists love unintended consequences. <laughs> we're helping you early in your career, and then we're tempting you later in your career, and who knows what happens in the net. So, right. Yeah. Wow. Let's move away from economics. Sure. And let's talk about your personal life yes. in the sense of you are affiliated with and helped kind of get started this new St. Thomas More Academy yes. here in South Bend. So what is it and what is the the genesis of the St. Thomas More Academy? So St. Thomas More Academy is an opportunity for the people of South Bend to have one of the finest Catholic schools in the country right here for our children. If you look at the community that exists here in South Bend, this is a community that is very interested in making sure that a deep integration of Catholic life occurs in their schools. And I think St. Thomas More Academy is going to offer that and is offering it already with daily mass and with Catholicism and and, um, the Catholic life deeply integrated throughout our, our curriculum. But this is also a community that understands that you need both faith and reason. You got to fly on both of those wings, as St. John Paul II said. And so this is also a community that wants and expects to have their children have the same opportunities that lucky secular kids on the coasts have for excellent academics. And we want to be a school that understands that in order to achieve either one of those things in the deepest and truest way, you actually need to achieve both. And we've set up a K through five school that's going to grow steadily into a K through 12 school. And in this school, we're teaching the kids to fly on both wings, both faith 
and reason. So I gave you an example of the faith side. You know, we're, we have got daily mass. We've got prayers and hymns integrated throughout our curriculum. Our, much of our curriculum is based on salvation history. Let me give you an example of the reason side. So I'm guest teaching science classes um, every Monday afternoon to the fourth and fifth graders at St. Thomas More Academy. And, you know, what am I teaching? Like all classical teachers, I'm teaching something that's higher than the highest level of the students in the class. I'm sharing some true excellence with them and then letting them through conversation and the Socratic method each rise up according to their own abilities to their personal best understanding of that excellence. So let me put it in in specific terms. Um, These are fourth and fifth graders, but I know that they're smart kids and most importantly, they're curious and they're persevering kids and they are able to learn through conversation because that's how they're being formed at STMA. So I started a conversation and the conversation was about forces. So I had a student come up to the front of the class and push a table without anybody sitting on the table. And I said, how much force or effort did that take? And they said, well, you know, not very much. And then I said, let's put a massive object on top of this table. And the massive object was me. (laughs) So I sat on top of the table and I said, now push it the same quickness that you did before. And they did. And I said, how much force or effort did that take? And they said, a lot more force. And I said, okay, everybody forces are what causes things to start moving. And if it's a more massive object, it takes more force to make it move the same quickness. So everybody knew that. Then I dropped two things on the ground and we used you know, slow motion cameras to measure how long it took them to fall, a more massive thing and a less massive thing. And I said, what's pulling these things down? And they said, gravitation. We didn't say, that's a force. We've, they've heard of that word. So it's gravity, the force of gravity. So they knew that. I said, well, how fast are they falling? They were both falling at the same acceleration, really. They both hit the ground at the same time. So I said, well, given what we just found out about forces, what must be true of the force of gravity in order for the more massive object to be pulled down just as quickly as the less massive one? And they got it. They said, it must be the force of gravity gets bigger the more massive the object. So they were learning through conversation important facts about gravity, but we didn't stop there. And this is just in the first class. I said, okay, well, let's look, let's look at astronauts on the moon. Same astronaut walking on Earth, he jumps up, he falls down quickly. On the moon, he jumps up, he falls down slowly. But he's the same mass in both places. It's the same size. What must be going on? And I kid you not, one of the kids, after conversation, we conversed about it for a while. We had hypotheses. We argued it out. One kid, his eyes lit up. It's that thing that I love as a teacher. And he said, oh, oh, Mr. Doran, I've got it. And I said, what is it? He said, it must be the same thing. The moon is smaller than the earth. It's less massive. Maybe the force of gravity also depends on how massive the thing pulling you down is. They got both of them. Wow. And so I would have killed for a class like that when I was in fourth and fifth grade. And you know, every single one of these kids learned something in that class because we were doing it in conversation. We were doing it together. Now, that's just me. That's me teaching. You know who the really good teachers are? All the other teachers that are there who are the professional teachers who are not just volunteer teaching on Monday, but they're teaching all the time. And if you look at what these teachers are doing, it's just phenomenal through conversation, through curiosity, through relatively small classes and really dedicated teachers through an amazing curriculum. We're able to offer to these students a kind of education that I wished I'd had when they were, right. I was their age. Wow. Yeah. How many students are, are in the school? Right now there's 55 students. Okay. And um, we are currently exploring growing next year by adding a sixth grade and exploring some options um, to grow horizontally as well. And so we'll have more news, formal news to share about that very soon. Sure. 
Um, but the upshot of it is, is that we are going to have an open house on November 16th, I believe. And um, you should feel free to contact uh, office at stmasb.org uh, uh, if you're interested in learning more. You can also contact our uh, wonderful head of school, uh, Dr. Margaret Bloomfordoso, uh, or our wonderful assistant head, uh, Emily Nye. Um, and both of them would be eager to talk about uh, what, what we're doing at STMA. That's awesome. Why St. Thomas More is a patron? Well, uh, St. Thomas More was um, – St. Thomas More was a great classicist. He was part of the uh, humanist tradition in the best sense. He was one of the best educated uh, lay people of his time and most important lay people of his time. He supported the education of his daughters at a time when that was rare. He was a married man um, living in the world participating uh, in daily activities that involved both great opportunities and great temptations. And in the midst of all of that, and with the help of his classical learning and his love of the church, he was able to be a saint. In spite of his efforts in many ways. In spite of his efforts, yes. Well, in spite of all the things that, yes, right. that could easily go wrong in, in such a life. Those constraints uh, we talked about Those constraints, earlier. yes. Um, and, you know, the, the friendships that should have led to uh, fruitful activities that then in the subject of in – the, in, in the context of, of bad times and bad temptations, those friendships with people such as uh, his, his beloved friend Henry um, ended up turning against him. Um, but he stood fast to the faith and maintained a sense of humor and great wit and learning up until the end. Yeah. Wow. Well, Kirk Doran, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been fantastic talking with you, and I look forward to doing it again. Thank you to Kirk Doran. In the show notes, you will find a link to his faculty page, to the TikTok video about utilitarianism, and to the St. Thomas More Academy website. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.